Good morning, and welcome to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN, where our goal every Sunday is to entertain, enlighten, and expose you to information that can lead to positive change in your life. I'm Larry Hardesty. You know, there's a growing number of athletes, both professional and amateur, who have spoken out on the challenges they faced dealing with mental illness. This morning, we'll tackle this issue with Dr. James Houle. He's a sports psychologist at the Ohio State University Wexler Medical Center. Please have a pen, pencil, and piece of paper handy, or maybe your smartphone, iPad, or whatever you use to take down some valuable information you'll hear this morning. And thanks for making us a part of your day, whether you're preparing for an early run or perhaps a sunrise service. We'll begin this edition of New York Sports and Beyond, talking mental illness and athletes, next on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Dr. James Houle is a counseling psychologist specializing in sports psychology. He takes a practical, straightforward approach to care, taking the time to get to know the individual, gain an understanding of what kind of person they would like to be, and then work with them to develop ways to cope with what may be troubling them. The ultimate goal is to have folks he works with begin to live a fuller and more intentional life. Now, prior to becoming a psychologist, he was a gymnast for 18 years. Gymnasts learned at an early age that the sports requires a lot of discipline and goal setting. We have to talk to him about that. Having that background has helped him see firsthand the sacrifices that athletes make, the conflicts they are created, and the different ways he can help them. So whether you're an athlete or not, the same principles apply in helping individuals develop into the best person possible. Join me in welcoming Dr. James Houle to New York Sports and Beyond. Hi, doctor. How are you this morning? Good, good, doing well. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's our pleasure. Thank you for joining us this morning. It's an interesting topic. It's one that has been reaching out to fans and people in sports in the long time for a while now. Here's where I'm going to start, though, Doctor, and I'm very curious about this. In talking with fans and callers, as we do here a lot on ESPN, it's their reaction seems to be of surprise that athletes are speaking out about mental illness and how how could they have this issue? Doctor, let's let's start here. Why is it that fans look at athletes as though they're not human beings? Yeah, you know, I think because they do things on TV that you would think are superhuman. I mean, we see, you know, we see LeBron James jump over somebody to dunk a ball or we see somebody throw a 60-yard pass or, you know, Simone Biles do a triple-double on the floor and we think, that is that is superhuman, you know. Um, except for their brains, their brains are just like everybody else's brains, you know. Um, and 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 they were just as susceptible to mental illness and mental health concerns as everybody else. Yeah, it, it, it's fascinating. And uh, doctor, I think what also makes a unique relationship now between fans and athletes. It, not necessarily in amateur sports, but definitely in professional sports, is the, is the explosion in, in sports betting. And so with sports betting and sports fantasy leagues, you, fans kind of feel like they own athletes. <laughs> yeah, well, they're they're invested at a whole nother level. It's not just being a fan. Now they got part of their paycheck is in there. you know. And so I, I think that that brings a whole nother level of like intent watching and concern about the outcome that, that may not, not have existed before. Now, Dr. Hull, when we, when we introduced you before you came on, I told the audience a little bit about your background. You're a former gymnast. Take me through uh, the art of, of gymnastics, how you learned it, how, how far you got with it, and what, why was gym, gymnastics the sport that intrigued you the most? I, I appreciate you asking. I mean, I, it's, um, 
it, it was a sport. My, my best friend growing up, um, he was going to do it. So I was like, you're pretty cool. Let me come <laughs> hang out with you even more. So I hitched a ride over to the gym and, uh, you know, one day I'm in the gym and this guy comes in and everybody's chattering about who it is. And I don't even know who this is. And, um, it was Tim Daggett who, uh, who announces now for the Olympics. And he, he was my coach, uh, through high school. And, um, and I was fortunate enough my sophomore year in high school to win my first junior Olympic national championship. And, uh, then I tried to follow it up the next year. And that was really hard. Um, I give a true appreciation for anybody who's ever trying to back up a national championship with a national championship. And I kind of crumbled under the pressure there. And, um, and, I, and that's when I, I actually saw a sports psychologist myself. Hmm. And um, I was able to change the way I was thinking and how I was approaching the sport. And um, that's what led me to win my second national championship my senior year in high school. And the first person I called was my sports psychologist. And I was like, we did it. You know, we mm. did it together. Um, and so I, I've always loved the sport. Uh, I think I was naturally made for it. I was pretty flexible and a ton of energy. And you put those two things together with a lack of fear and you got a gymnast. <laughs> <laughs> Take us through preparation, practice time, uh, all that that led you to be a two-time champion? Yeah, um, it was, oh, man, four hours a day, six days a week, um, you know, 3 to 7 p.m. I mean, uh, kids, you know, kids, kids, I would get home from school. I would eat something real quick, hop in the car, and I'm off to the gym. I get home, eat something real quick, and I'm doing homework till 10, 30, 11, and then I'm to sleep. And, um and then that's, you know, then you get around sophomore, junior year, and that's when, you know, colleges start calling and that kind of stuff. Mm. And that's when I, uh, I, I, I thought about Ohio State, you know. And, and so uh, it was a lot of sacrifice, uh, a lot of um, missed holidays, missed vacations, missed birthdays, all that kind of stuff, but for the ultimate goal of uh, standing on top of the podium. As you look back, uh, do you regret it? Would you change anything? It's an excellent question. Um, I don't think I would because of the just just the trials, tribulations, things I've learned through the process, even injuries I experienced. You know, um, I think it was worth it just because just the lessons I took out of it. You know, about perseverance and resiliency. So I, I wouldn't change it. See, that's why we have you on because you give us a unique perspective. This is Dr. James Houle. He's a sports psychologist at the at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty because, Doctor, you can take us through the mind of an athlete. Most athletes I've had the pleasure of speaking with talk about almost a fear of losing. Um, losing is not an option. It is that type of mental preparation that you have to some athletes, and of course everybody's different, that allows you to get from point A to point B. Uh, and obviously it's different from uh, professional to amateur and it's different from team to individual. So is there something we can take kind of a universal uh, attitude or a universal function, doctor, of what of what athletes are primed, are primed for that makes them successful? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the ultra-successful athletes are often, um, they, they don't often shy away from challenge. They, they, they kind of like approach challenge as opposed to back down from challenge. Um, you know, a, a, a good friend of mine, Blaine Wilson, is five-time national champion, Olympian and all that, tore his bicep and called me, you know, 
30 seconds after he tore it and said, I'm going to make the next Olympic team. Mm. And I was like, man, you just tore your bicep, like literally on TV just now. And he said, I'm going to make the Olympic team. And so there, I think when we get to that high level, they have the skills necessary to really believe in themselves to do maybe what some people would think is like kind of superhuman things. Um, and, and they don't, they don't spend a lot of time really, really beating themselves up. They, they're able to like, um, take the loss or whatever it is, take the difficulty and able to move forward from it um, uh, better than some folks that, that, that might not be able to have that skill. It, it's a fascinating skill. And let's talk about the Olympics, uh, doctor. It's, uh, we've just had another athlete pull out, uh, you know, a, a couple of days ago. This is uh, Liz, Liz Cambage, uh, who uh, played for Australia. Uh, for the WNBA, and um, she's backed out because incited mental stress. Take us through, because this is kind of what you experienced in a sense. This is the mm -hmm. ultimate pressure. This is representing your country. This is an event that happens not every season, not every year. This is a once-in-a-lifetime thing that you you practice and prepare your life for. And now, obviously, with that and, and the whole surrounding of COVID and all the other issues, what does an athlete go through in that situation? It can be, you know, it can be very overwhelming. You know, I have colleagues of mine that work with, uh, they're actually flying out to Tokyo right now. I just got off a call with a buddy of mine that's in Tokyo right now. And they spend a lot of time with the athletes talking about getting ready for this just absolutely overwhelming feeling when they get to the games, which is just like, I cannot believe I'm even here. You know, you think about it and dream about it and fantasize about it for, for not just four years, but like your life and your career. And it can, and, and, and it can just, just wash over you sometimes, even when it's good. Say you make the Olympic team and, and, and you're, you're getting phone calls from everybody who you ever knew saying, congratulations. Hey, Hey, you know, can I get some tickets or whatever? And it, it's just, it's joyous. And it's a, just, another level of pressure. And so, so often we work with these athletes and we talk to them about focusing on themselves and what they can control. And, and so that might be setting limits or, or what it is, but you know, it can get a little, little wonky when we're starting to think about things we're out of our control. And what does a COVID-19 pandemic add to that? I just, you know, <laughs> some of them can't have their family in the stands. You know, yeah. I, I couldn't imagine training my entire life for something. And then my mom and dad couldn't be there. Mm. You know, the people who drove me to practice or the people who paid for me to fly to California every year or whatever, you know, I, it, it's, it's, it's just a unique situation that they're not going to have fans uh, in this, in the crowd. And, and, and some of them, it's interesting. They've had to wait an extra year. Mm -hmm. COVID made them, they might have thought 2020, they have it up in their locker, on their walls, all those kind of stuff, 2020, and then it pushes a year. Some of them, their bodies can't hold up for one more year, mm -hmm. you know? So it is fascinating. And what does that do mentally? When you have that, for the professional athlete, and amateur athlete, when you have that goal, because the, the athletes are very goal-oriented, obviously. So yeah. when you have that goal and that's it, 2020, everything I got for 2020, for 2020, for 2020, everything is eat sleep and awake 2020 and now it's 2021 and now it's like okay mm -hmm. so how do you readjust how do they reprogram their, their that task do they do they, or is it for them just another challenge 
Well, you know, kind of around what you're saying right there. You know, like one of the things I love about sport, and it, I simultaneously love it, and it's really frustrating, is that built into the sport is failure. Mm. It, it's over and over and over again, just falling and getting up, falling and getting up, losing game, win, lose. And so uh, if the athletes can conceptualize it at just another one of those challenges that they have faced, then they're able to kind of move through it. If they, if they become devastated because 2020 was the only thing in their mind, um, then that becomes a little more difficult. But if they're able to see it like, okay, you know, this is, this is just like when I was injured five years ago and I came back from that, I can just keep doing this, you know? So that flexibility is helpful. Now, Dr. Hu, let's, let's tweak this uh, scenario a little bit more. What if it's an athlete who's approaching perhaps their last Olympic? How do, how do they make that adjustment, right? That is, it's 2020. If I could just get to, this is going to be, if I could just get to this Olympic and now you move it another year, do they look at it the same way? What adjustments do they have to make? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. And these are the tricky situations. People who have made major sacrifices, you know, say they are pushing off having a family, say they're pushing off having a career outside of sport. This is very difficult. And I think oftentimes these veteran athletes, they, they have a way of taking care of themselves that's made them last to this point anyway, mm. right? So whether that's physically or mentally or their social support to see themselves outside of just being an athlete, that helps them maintain the process. You know, I've come this far. I can do one more year long. I know it's hard, but they're used to the sacrifice. So uh, it's a good question, though. Dr. Hull, how does it – how would these Olympians – adjust to not having crowds and not having family as we've talked about a few moments ago is it different team oriented to individual i mean team people athletes in team sports will they be able to handle it differently than athletes who are in individual sports or will it affect them equally i you know it's hard to say i mean my, my, my thought is you know and it's been my experience that especially in the team sports um it they are they know to bring the energy. The energy comes from the team more than the crowd. And, and, and it's got to come from the team. They, the team has to be extra loud and bring the juice and all that kind of stuff. And so they kind of lean more on their team to kind of bring, bring that energy. For the individual sports, they're used to being the, in, the, in the individual realm. So they're used to that kind of hyper-focus on their own performance. And so they're kind of used to that as well. But again, you know, it's about controlling what they can control. And, and being able to uh, uh, focus on that as opposed to the external factors. Do athletes really need the crowd? It, 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 yeah, I mean, another good <laughs> question. I mean, I, I think, you know, they're really focused on what they're doing. Mm-hmm. As much as people, you know, you know, in the exceptions of people throwing things on them and that kind of stuff. I yeah, mean, they're, really. they're really focused on what they're doing. And, and so um, where, where I notice it for the athletes is like timeouts or like half times or that kind of stuff where they actually will come up out of their zone and, and notice the context around them. That's when it matters or they see it more, but it, it, for the most part, they're just hyper-focused on what they're doing. Yeah. It's interesting. I want to come back to that a little bit later, Dr. Uh, Dr. James Hull is my guest. He's a sports psychologist at the Ohio state university Wexner medical center. You're listening to New York sports and beyond here on 987 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. When New York sports and beyond returns, we'll discuss how to help young athletes strengthen their mental fortitude. We are 98.7 ESPN, New York. 
Thanks for stopping by New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's continue my conversation with Dr. James Houle, sports psychologist at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Doctor, I want to go away from professional athletes for a minute. I want to talk to mom and dad who are listening, who've got that young gymnast, who's got that young football player, that young baseball player, that young basketball player. Doctor, how should we prepare our young people so that they're – They've got a balance. You know what I mean? There's a balance between sports and we love it and we want to push them, but they, they have to have that balance of, quote, regular life, unquote. Yeah, regular life and, and, and trying as hard as we can to not lose why we love the sport and having fun. Like one of the biggest parts of youth sport is enjoyment and, and, and what they love about their sport. And if we get too focused on outcomes, wins, losses, that kind of stuff, um, it can, we lose that. You know, if their dream is to play in the league one day, they'll be a professional. There's no reason to treat it to be a professional when they're 15. You know, so it's more about enjoying the sport because burnout is high. The stakes are high. I mean, now that, you know, college costs so much, there's such pressure to get scholarships. And those that are hyper successful usually love their sport. They're usually able to hold on to what they enjoy their sport, and they, they're able to pick out that in their sport and, and really focus their attention on that versus the mistakes. As parents, how do we handle it? I talk to so many parents, and, and you, I know you've heard this line before. What is going on with sports today? I don't want a, partic- a participation trophy for my kid. <laughs> I want to see yeah. that they win something, that there's something up on the wall that they can have, that, that they you know won, and it's about that. How do we not enforce what we think is winning to what our kids need to learn about winning. Yeah. I mean, um, or what they need to learn about losing. I mean, that's, that's where my mind goes too. you know, Mm -hmm. like I, like I'm with you. I mean, I'm not all about if, if everybody gets a trophy, it's not a special when you win. I'm not saying it's not special to win. I just want to see how much focus we put on winning. How are you speaking to your kid when they win? How are, are you talking about effort or are you talking about the trophy, the size of the trophy? You know, are you talking about, wow, look like you, you, you did everything you could out there. That was amazing. Whether they win or lose, that's the focus. Um, and, and I'm, I'm all about winning. I'm a hyper competitive person myself. Um, and I've also seen what happens when parents dreams, uh, affect their kids sports. So mm. I see both sides. And talk a little bit more about that, doctor, because there's a ton of it. I had a I had a dad years ago who was coaching his his son's team, and he said, "Ah, oh, we're gonna win this football game this week." I saw the diagram of what Bill Parcells' blitz package for the Giants, and I got it down <laughs> for our kids, and we're gonna we're gonna beat that team. That ultra competitiveness that we're trying to because we didn't make it. We're, we're, we're living our life through our kids. Yeah. And it, it, it's just, it's okay. I, I think it's kind of natural and we got to be aware of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the, the unlived life of the parents can be one of the biggest detriments to the children. Mm. So when they, when they have an unlived dream fantasy, I, it could be sport. It could be other things like job or college or whatever. And we will put that on them that they, they can feel it. The kids can feel it. Like, why are you so ramped up about this game, Dad? Why does it matter to you? I'm playing, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's more, again, again, you, you hear these professional athletes going to their kids' games, 
and and for the most part they're sitting in the stands with their hands between you know on their knees quiet because they mm-hmm. know not to get in the coach's way <laughs> yeah yeah because they've experienced they know <laughs> they know the they, they don't want that for their kids you know <laughs> yeah sure sure it's fascinating uh any other tips doctor and, and you touched on it a little bit but and it's sad because in a lot of ways you learn more from losing than you do winning, right? So, so how do yeah. you, how how do you as uh, and you mentioned about talking to them, but how do you instill that in the kids that not that it's okay to lose, but to focus on what you learned from the losing? How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, um, again, again, it's kind of like I always focus on effort, and it, and it, and it's like, did you try? Did you try your hardest? Yes, I did try your hardest. Well, what else is there then, you know? Because there's things that you're going to go, you're going to go up against better teams. There's going to be better athletes. But, mm. but it, it applies to jobs too, right? You, yeah. you, could, you could do everything you could, and then there's something out of your control that comes in, and they got hired, and you didn't. But we got to be confident that we put our best foot forward, and that's all we got in life, and that's just above and beyond sport. And the pressure that we put on on young kids, uh, and you mentioned that you alluded to it in trying to get the the you know the scholarship in college. How do we how do we kind of ease the pressure off our young kids and, and let them have fun and let them enjoy it? Because you know ultimately, if we don't, what happens is they're not going to want to play. Once it stops stops becoming fun, they don't want to play anymore. Yeah, you you know what you know what's really can be one of the sadder things I see in my office is somebody on a full scholarship sitting in my office just going, I hate my sport. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be here. And I'm thinking, you know, you're getting a hundred thousand dollar education for free and you don't even want to be here. I mean, I think when we what I talk to parents often about is really um, you know, exposing the the kid and, and, and themselves to their identity outside of sport. So like, let's, let, let, you know, let's go on, let's go on vacation. Let's go fishing or let's go do, let's go paint a picture or something identity outside of sport. And when we can expand that, they're actually like mentally tougher if, than if their identity is only on sport, uh, because that becomes too much pressure. Hmm. Dealing with pressure. That's huge. How, how do oh, we yeah. help our young kids understand what that is and how to deal with it and and you know so that it doesn't come as a huge shock to them yeah you, you know i actually have to go back to my sports psychologist because mm-hmm. i i felt that you know i i i was like dude all eyes are on me man everybody looking at me i just won they they want to take me down they they want to see me fall and he goes jamie i want you to go ahead and just touch pressure for me can you mm-hmm. grab pressure for me where is it can you can you can you put it in your hands and I was like, no. He's like, exactly. He said, so it's about how you perceive the situation. And the cool thing about that is we're in control of that, how mm. we perceive the situation. So like when we see ourselves as more than just an athlete and that people care about us outside of just being an athlete, we could be invincible. Those people are dangerous. But when people think, think I'm, I'm just a soccer player and if I don't win this game, I, I suck as a person, then, then the stakes become more about – about their character and not about them being an athlete. Wow, it's fascinating. Um, Doctor, as far as, because we can go on the other side, right? You can have the athlete that is too confident, the athlete that Mm -hmm. is special, that has been treated special, that knows they are, they're the best. And then they go from being the best in high school 
to going to oh yeah in Ohio State right where mm-hmm. there's there's somebody there's as the as the fishbowl gets bigger there's bigger fish in the fishbowl how do <laughs> how do you make that adjustment how do you help them make that adjustment where you've gone from being king of the campus and now you're on the team that may include Mr. Basketball or Mr. Football for for a yeah. state yeah, that's we get that a lot here, <laughs> um, you know, and and, uh, um, you know, I always have athletes be real mindful of how they're talking to themselves and catch themselves if they're I, I call it uh, shooting all over yourself. Are you, I should be the starter. You know, I was the mm. man in, in high school and I should be the starter. I'm better than that guy. Well, whether you think you should or you think you shouldn't, you, you, you aren't right now. And so that kind of like radical acceptance of the way the situation is. And again, coming back to like, well, if, if I, they're going to choose that, that guy over me, even though I'm better than him, I'm going to grind out. I'm going to do what I can do to just put myself in the best position that when, when my number's called, I'm ready. And, and obviously we've had that experience here at Ohio State in 2014 when we lost two of our quarterbacks and the third string quarterback won the national championship. Mm. I mean, he just grinded out. And when his number was called, he was ready. So it's just being mindful of not being should and just being this is what it is now. And that's a huge adjustment because we have trained our kids that you're the best. You have to be the best. You have to go out there and prove that you're the best. So now that they have that in their mind, they've been programmed that they're the best. They've gone out and proven they're the best. And now they're third string on on the on the team. It, it can it can be a lot of pressure. What do I need to do to get to be as you mentioned? Should or shouldn't? But in their minds, they're like, okay, well, what do I need to do to get to be first string? Because if I'm not the starter, I'm not good. Oh yeah, well, right. That's quite the assumption, right? And 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 I what I would say is, are you better than you were yesterday? Hmm. The comparison is against yourself, not other people. Because other people, again, they're they 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 might may or may not be better than you. They might just be really good friends with the, with the coach. And that's why they're in there. But mm. are you better than you, you were yesterday? Same with jobs, same with life is, is how can I improve on myself yesterday? You know, and, and that's where the focus is. And that's doable. You can do stuff about that. You can't do anything about somebody choosing somebody over you. Unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's true. It's true. I, I'm curious with, as, before we go back to the pros, I'm curious, how do you prepare these athletes who are now they're at the end of their term in school and they're not going to be pros and and how do you how do you prepare them for the realization that you have to be honest with yourself of course there's walk on and there's always great stories that we have doctor but the reality sets in that okay I've done this I'm not going to realize my dream as a professional how do you reprogram them to make that adjustment to being quote a regular person unquote <laughs> yeah, right, right. That, that in college athletes, we have this thing called a NARP, non-athlete regular person. That's what they call. Them. <laughs> so when when are you going to be ready to be a NARP? You know, um, and 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 I always talk to them about Plan B. I'm like, you know, if you want to go to the league and that's your goal, awesome. And we need a backup plan because because mm. you know you don't show up at a game or whatever with only you know one football or only one pair of ring grips or only one pair of shoes you always got a backup so we need to be realistic and plan it just in case the fantasy doesn't work out you know and so and and so we do a lot of education here on this end starting their freshman year as they come in that what their what their plan is outside of football and and or or other sports you know um but 
Um, particularly here at OSU, they talk about real life Wednesdays. They bring in people to talk about building their resumes and internships. So what, what's going to happen in case? And the, and the more planned and ready they are and knowing themselves outside of being just an athlete, the more successful they are. Dr. James Houle is my guest. He's a sports psychologist at the Ohio State University of Wexner Medical Center. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Coming up, why are professional and amateur athletes speaking out more about mental illness situations? This is New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's conclude my discussion with Dr. James Houle, sports psychologist at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Doctor, I'm curious, how did this uh, medical center become available? And, and how did you, uh, you know, what's some of the work that you're doing with young people and how's that going? Oh, it, well, it's going, it's going amazing. I mean, I, so 2016, I was at the University of Maryland um, and, and I, was, I was saying to my buddy, who's a sports psychologist at Ohio State at the time, I said, you know, my job here in Maryland, this is a dream job. The only way it could be better is if I was at Ohio State, you know. And so um, and then one day, one of the sports psychologists here just asked me if I wanted to come back and be a Buckeye again. And I said, let me check with my wife because we just bought a house. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but uh, we, we took a bath on that and moved out to Columbus. Um, so and then in t- 2019, I was tapped to become the lead sports psychologist for Ohio State Athletics, and we hired four full-time um, mental health providers for athletics for our 1,100 student-athletes. And it's, and it's gone really well. You know, um, we are very fortunate to have uh, an extremely supportive athletic director and um, uh, extremely supportive coaches. Mm-hmm. And, and so they've, we've really been integrated into athletics, and that's allowed the stigma associated with mental health to come down and our utilization rates to go up. So we increased 7% this year, 23% increase in individual appointments. So people are coming in more and accessing the resources, and that's what we've wanted when I took over the program. Well, that's great. And, and we, you know, we appreciate the work that you and your colleagues are doing because it's about reality, right? It, it's about transforming athletes who have, some who have been uh, treated very well. Some who have really worked hard, some who have really not worked as hard. I mean, there's all different examples, right, of, of how you get from point A to point B. But ultimately, it's the adjustment of whether it's rebounding from an injury or, or multiple injuries or, or, or being able to go out and continue your career or, or just whatever adversity you have because of family situations to make you wonder if yeah. the game really is important to you anymore. There's so many different things that happen in what we call life, doctor, <laughs> that that yeah. that challenge, you know, your belief factors in, in what becomes important and that it it ultimately is it's a career, but it really is just a game. It, it is just a game. And we try to we try to remind them of that. You know, I mean, it, it there is a lot of pressure and there are things that can be more important, you know, and covid really shined a light on that. We had many athletes lose family members to COVID and, and to be separated from their families. And our international student athletes were kind of stuck in the U.S. And uh, um, it, it just it, it was really difficult. And, and we're seeing more and more student athletes come into college already participating in therapy or having medicine, uh, medication mm. for mental health issues. And so, um, you know, and people are more likely to talk about mental health issues. And so we're seeing more trauma and people being able to talk about that. And so it's just, we're just more exposed to it now. And uh, we're just trying to be prepared. 
and th- that's that's great great transition. Why are we? Why are people? Why are athletes speaking out more about this? This is something that clearly is not new, doctor. Oh no, no, yeah, it's it's existed for very for, from the beginning of time. It's just how it was playing out and how it was being exposed. You know, I think, uh, I think you know, let's let's call it the '80s or something like that. In the '80s, mm-hmm. you know, a lot there was talk about drug use and, 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 and cocaine and crack cocaine and sports and alcoholism and that kind of stuff. But then if you take a step back, even from that, we look at the mental health issues that were probably going on underneath that. Well, now people are much more likely to use the word anxiety, mm-hmm. um, much more likely to use the word depression to describe how they're feeling and the walls aren't falling down. They're not being fired. They're not being ostracized necessarily. They're actually getting praised by many, many people. And that, that normalization of the experience makes it not uh, less shame associated with it. And that means that it's not going to last as long because it's not in the dark. Mm-hmm. So when we can just expose it and be um, more open about it, we feel less bad about it and we can get more support. I was fascinated to read in, in various articles in preparing for our, our conversation this morning to the extent of which we're finding professional athletes dealing with mental illness and, and mental anxiety. And obviously Kevin Love comes to mind, uh, Michael Phelps, but it, and that's, of course, here in, in the States. But mm-hmm. uh, f- soccer players, cricket players, uh, tennis players around the world are dealing with this 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 same issue. Is it from the professional level? Is it kind of the same pressures, doctor? Despite the fact that it could be, as we mentioned earlier with with colleges, is it the same thing? Despite what whether it's a a pro uh, a team sport or individual sport that. Are the challenges kind of universal or is it really individual? And I understand about Michael Phelps and, you know, you're going for constant gold and you, you, you're breaking records. Right. You're, you're, com- you're compared to everybody else. And, and so that pressures. Is that similar to what we're seeing? You, you know, so I guess what I'd say um, quite the psychologist thing to say is that it depends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but I mean, like, so you will have different you, you'll have different levels of pressure and then you'll have different. You know, we haven't much talked about, like the genetic component to mental health. Okay, so let's some do people that. are just predisposed. Yeah, some people are just predisposed to just be more likely to be experiencing anxiety depression. So, mm-hmm. it, um, you know, and that, so it's not just the environment, you know, that they're in where there might be high, high levels of pressure, but it's high, high levels of pressure and then potential genetic predisposition to it or, you know, catastrophic events like a concussion or like a, a big, huge injury or a death in their family or something like that, that just kind of puts people over the edge. So it's kind of, I would say it's more on the individual uh, realm. Individually based. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Kevin Love, I think, was a person in the NBA that really kind of shocked everybody uh, when mm-hmm. he came out and, and, and shared with the mental health issues that he was dealing with and had to actually take time away from the sport uh, at the, the, during the season. I mean, that was yeah. something that really kind of, you know, you applauded, you, you applaud him in a lot of ways. But it, it really, I guess, in a sense, too, Dr. Goes to show how because it had been more universally spoken about the stigma of, Oh, come on, you're a professional athlete. You got to be tough. It kind of waiting for him to feel comfortable to say that. Yeah. And and, you know, the the thing is, it's a great example. 
And and I think when people, at, at, especially at Kevin Love's level, come out and talk about it, it really helps the community for sure. Mm-hmm. And but like his story is interesting because he left the court right, and he goes back into the back into the training room and falls down on the ground, grabbing his chest, thinking he's having a heart attack. I mean, and and it just really points to the fact that like initially he thought he was having a heart attack, which with a panic attack is often the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's like, I think that's where he went initially. Like I, what's wrong with me physically. But then when he realized that it was a mental health issue, he was like, we got to talk about this because yeah. I thought I was having a heart attack, but apparently mental health issues will affect you this way. So I, I love his realization and his ability to talk about it. It, it was, it, it was, it was fascinating. It was fascinating as was Dr. Paul George last season who talked about the fact that because of being you know, isolated and with, with COVID-19 and the bubble uh, that the NBA set aside to protect players but still <laughs> continue to you know, go on and perform, some would say cynically, and continue to make money, uh, right. that, that he was affected because he was away from his family and there were no fans and it was just him and his teammates and in spots even he was isolated from his teammates. Yeah, I mean that. Well, and what we know is that, um, and this is this is tough, is that social isolation is one of the largest predictors of mental health concerns, especially depression and even thoughts of suicide. And so, you know, when I when I first when COVID first hit and I heard about social distancing, I thought to myself, well, that's an that's a fancy way to say socially isolate. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh no, you know, I, I said, oh no, like we're going to be stuck isolated and. And people are going to be stuck in their heads, you know, and that, and sometimes the, the good thing about being in your head is that it's infinite and it could be so many awesome possibilities. And on the flip side of that, it can go down some very dark um, pathways, you know, so I, I think it, it, it makes sense to me that he, he had a hard time. Yeah, no question about it. Dr. James Houle, psychologist at the Ohio State University Wexler Medical Center is my guest. Doctor, let's talk a little bit about um, Naomi Osaka. And because that's recent and the situation there and and how tennis dealt with it by finding her for not coming to a press conference. You know, I I under I understand, unquote, what they were thinking, but it just seems to be they could have handled it a little differently. Yeah, that uh, complicated situation. And, you know, with there's policies and all this kind of stuff. But I mean, I I think. Um, it really just highlighted, again, for me, all these circumstances highlight the fact that these athletes, although doing superhuman things, are still, are still humans. You know, they, they have feelings too. You know, they have mm-hmm. ways they think about themselves. And, and, and what happens when, uh, what happens when they're, ha- they're struggling inside and they're, quote, unquote, not supposed to show it? Like, be, toughen up, you know, like, get it together. But it's like, mm-hmm. okay, but at what cost? At what cost? I'm supposed to play at this high level and I'm supposed to shove everything I feel down and not show it like that feels unfair. You know, so I think it was again, it just exposed the fact that, you know, they just have a lot on their plates and they're performing at such a high level. And it's it's tough, man. It's got to be tough. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. A couple more questions for you, doctor. In the time that I have remaining, I, I just wanted one for young kids and one for for the for the professional athletes. Right. Let's go with the young kids first the adjustment that they have to make because some of their sports because of COVID was taken away 
you know, mm-hmm. cha- things change. NCAA change. You didn't, you know, there was so many differences. How do you, how do they recalibrate themselves? How do they from from you know the low league all the way up to college? How do they recalibrate themselves and try to get back on track? As we talked earlier about their focus and their goals, how do they do that? Yeah, I mean, so I'm a big proponent of mindfulness. So your ability to pay attention to the present moment on purpose without judgment. So when we can help, um, well, young kids, but everybody really, um, be able to zone in on just what they're doing right now and and be careful about how we're predicting the future or what's going to happen in the future and just going, what am I doing today? What's my goal right now? What am I trying to do in this practice? How am, I, how am I making myself better right now? And and then I can plan for the future, but once you make that plan, leave it in the future and then go day to day. And and what I found and what the research supports too is that when we're able to focus on the present moment and suspend that judgment of being good or bad, we actually are happier as people. And so I would encourage young folks who, even though all this is swirling around, take a second and come back to what's happening right now. And that's usually like very physically and specifically, it's usually your breathing. So when you focus on your breathing, that's going to bring you back to what's actually happening right now. And people tend to calm down when that happens. Last thing. Why do professional athletes retire and unretire? <laughs> Don't they know when it's over, doctor? Don't they know? Oh, you, 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 you would think, right? You would think so. But I, I watch gymnastics every four years and I go, man i could get back in there come on now um uh, uh, but i mean it i it's the love of the sport you know it's the love mm. of the sport it's it's their identity you know it's it's mm. who they are you know like i think of jerome bettis you know the boss at, at, yeah. at the steelers you know he retired he was the boss he retires and he and and then it's kind of like well what do i do now or mm. brett Favre, like what do i do now like what am i supposed to do now like every sunday i reported to the field and that's what i did so it's kind of like, it's, again, it's, it's expanding their identity past just being an athlete, and, and that, that's going to help them move forward. But if it's only I can throw a baseball 99 miles an hour and that's who I am, then it's harder to move on. Dr. James Wool, it was a pleasure speaking with you this morning. Thank you uh, for shedding a lot of information and some helpful tips, and we'll talk soon. I really appreciate the opportunity, and thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Thank you, Dr. That wraps up this edition of New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. We thank you for listening. We'll join you this evening during the week on ESPN New York Tonight with Gordon Damer and right back here next Sunday morning on New York Sports and Beyond. For my producer, primetime Ray Santiago, and special thanks to the great Ray Dinahan, I'm Larry Hardesty. The conversation continues right here, right now on 98.7 ESPN New York.